help defend the church by becoming a supporter of Family Life International. Your contributions enable us to continue our work to promote the faith, defend the family and promote the sanctity of life. Make a real difference today. Go to www.familyandlife.org.uk donate. This short talk is about two subjects. The first is equality of values or of principles, an illusion which is presented hypocritically as not only achievable but also as already achieved. The claim to equality is so irrational and events have shown the hypocrisy so blatantly that its success is astonishing. It has been served by endless use of words such as tolerance and choice, underpinned by equally irrational and hypocritical assertion that standards should not be imposed. That provides the context for the other subject, the purpose of law. In his book entitled Render Unto Caesar, about living our Catholic beliefs in political life, American Archbishop Charles Chaput looked at the interplay between events in the church and in society. In a chapter entitled What Went Wrong, he wrote that after the Second Vatican Council, many Catholics thought that it no longer seemed so urgent to struggle against personal sin and that social progress was the real task for believers. Social progress is a reference to society as a whole. But because society is a collectivity of individuals, the progress of society depends on the individuals who are in that society. If they are defective in the relevant ways, they will be incapable of producing progress. Gaudium et Spes pointed that out in paragraph 30. Quote, Development cannot occur unless individual men and their associations cultivate in themselves the moral and social virtues and promote them in society. Unquote. Progress and progressive are frequently used words, but people have widely differing understandings of them. When we're making progress, and whether something is progressive rather than retrogressive, depends on whether we're going in the direction which we desire. Someone might say to an audience, we need to make progress, do you agree? If the audience were in favour, their agreement would be worth nothing unless all of them interpreted progress in the same way. Christians tell God that they hope that his will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven, but because there is enormous disagreement about what his will is, the apparent agreement doesn't take us very far. Similarly, Lumen Gentium declared in paragraph 36 that there is no human activity which can be withdrawn from God's dominion. Putting that together with the Our Father, prob probably most Christians would agree with the proposition that God's dominion over everything should be given practical effect. Unfortunately, 
the agreement would soon begin to disintegrate when the focus of attention moved on to another proposition in the same paragraph of Lumen Gentium. Quote, Let the laity, by their combined efforts, remedy the customs and conditions of the world if they are an inducement to sin, so that they all may be conformed to the norms of justice and may favour the practice of virtue rather than hinder it. Unquote. Christians disagree about the meaning and requirements of justice and of virtue, and therefore about whether this, that or something else is a sin. Furthermore, in religious circles, as well as non-religious ones, some people show a disinclination to regard a transgressor as personally responsible for his transgression. As Archbishop Chaput wrote, the shift away from the old struggles of personal morality can have the effect of implying that people are simply the products of social structures. Pope St John Paul the Great wrote about that in an apostolic exhortation entitled Reconciliatio et Penitentia. He pointed out that although various factors can affect the degree of moral responsibility which an individual bears, a fundamental part of morality is the principle of free will. Personal responsibility is undermined also by an idea that, in Archbishop Chaput's words, any faults we have are excusable facts of our natures. That's known as determinism, not the same thing as determination. The Oxford Dictionary of English defines it as a philosophical doctrine that all events, including human action, are ultimately determined by causes regarded as external to the will. The dictionary adds that some philosophers have taken determinism to imply that individual human beings have no free will and cannot be held morally responsible for their actions. In their very readable and well-argued book, The Godless Delusion, American Catholics Patrick Madrid and Kenneth Hensley referred to a famous Nobel Prize winning English scientist who had hypothesised that people are no more than robots controlled by internal chemical processes, brain chemistry. If they are, three questions arise. What basis can there be for criticising, punishing, praising or rewarding anybody? Why pay any attention to so-called experts who say that we're all robots? And should Nobel Prize winners decline to accept the prestige and the money which Nobel Prize winners receive? Here's another question. If people are robots, why bother with education? Lord Hailsham, a famous English politician and lawyer, said in a 1978 lecture to the Canon Law Society of Great Britain and Ireland, that if we are determinists, who believe that people's behaviour results from causes other than the exercise of their will, education does not differ in principle 
from the training of a horse or a dog. Determinism is like relativism in the sense that people who profess belief in it have their intellectual feet planted firmly in mid-air, as American radio talk show host Al Crester put it in his book entitled Dangers to the Faith. But we can be sure that they don't live in accordance with their professed belief. They recognise as clearly as anyone does that people do act freely and that there are moral absolutes and that types of behaviour are wrong. If you doubt it, read those excellent books by Al Crester, Patrick Madrid and Kenneth Hensley. And if you hear a determinist or relativist complaining about attitudes or events, you can ask him how he can justify his complaint if standards of behaviour are no more than debatable opinions and people are no more than robots. Meanwhile, even the most inattentive of people can see, frequently, evidence vindicating Archbishop Chaput's comment that offloading personal responsibility onto social structures and inbuilt weaknesses has grown into a cult of self-esteem and an unwillingness to judge. He wrote that it's now hard to claim that anything anyone does, anywhere, is always wrong. Perhaps in the United States it's less noticeable than in Britain that bishops and priests very rarely do say that anything is intrinsically wrong, unless they're sure that everyone will agree with them. Silence reigns regarding acts which the Church once declared, on paper at least, to be intrinsically wrong, but which are treated by law and custom as perfectly legitimate if freely chosen by people who can think for themselves. As if, said a 2002 Vatican document about Catholic participation in politics, every possible outlook on life were of equal value. Champions of choice chant about such equality, but in doing their dance of deference around the totem pole of tolerance, they make an exception. It's illustrated well by George Orwell's book entitled Animal Farm. The animals who had taken charge of the farm put up a notice proclaiming that all animals were equal, but later it was altered by the addition of, but some animals are more equal than others. In many countries today, public policy is pervaded by a principle which is very similar. It is that all outlooks on life are of equal value, but an outlook which denies the supremacy of religious authority, and especially Catholic authority, is the most equal. The ways in which this rule is, is applied have been illustrated clearly by a series of court cases involving Christians whose religiously based decisions were adjudged to be less equal than other people's contrary wishes. It seems clear from cases such as those that religion can be exercised freely if it is confined to prayer, preferably private, but that adherence to religious principles will not be allowed 
if it obstructs infringements of them, which the law treats as legitimate. The most common statement of this policy is that you must not impose your views. In practice, this has worked out to mean that religious views must not be imposed on the rebellious, but the rebellious will be helped by the courts to impose obedience on the religious. In a word, that is secularism, the refusal to acknowledge any authority of religion over the governance of society. Any society depends on the maintenance of order, meaning a recognisable degree of organisation maintained by enforceable rules. Such rules are necessary because experience shows that people tend to disagree, and the alternative, or in some cases a preliminary, to the settlement of dis disagreements by brute physical force is to apply principles. In a state, the rules are called the law. Law is, and ought to be, concerned with practicalities. Its purpose is primarily practical, and it is backed up by the availability of coercion to compel compliance. Despite the practical emphasis, the formulation of law involves ideas of reason and morality. But to varying extents, there is always disagreement among the rulers and among the ruled in regard to whether a law is rational and or moral. Reformers are as free to try to change the law as were those who helped to produce its present form. But whoever wins, and whether a society is governed by a dictatorship or a democracy, the law always shows the lawmaker's opinion of what is right. Lord Denning, a famous English judge, said that without morality there can be no law. Furthermore, most people, at least in democracies, agree that the law should be obeyed. At least they don't disagree with that opinion strongly enough to advocate or engage in disobeying the law. Therefore, there is a widespread tendency, in practice if not always in mind, to regard the law as the authoritative guide to morality. In other words, what is legal is okay and what is illegal is not okay. That criterion becomes increasingly dominant as individuals and societies become more and more detached from other standards of behaviour, most of all from religion. <coughs> Traditionally, law and religion have probably had a common function in the sense that each provided what Professor Edwin Tucker of the University of Connecticut called a floor of obligations. Regarding the law as the main expression of morality is likely to be better than the unbridled individual autonomy which produces anarchy, but it is a rather minimal standard. Lord Devlin, another famous English judge, said that no man is worth much 
if he governs his life according to what he can get away with. In other words, what the law allows him to do. Probably many people today would not understand that and think, why not? Perhaps they would understand if reminded that although a flaw is important, what underlies it is even more important. Because without foundations or a substratum, no flaw can be laid. Unless, moreover, the foundations are sound, which requires wise builders, the flaw, and indeed the building of which the flaw is part, will not be durable. Destabilising movement beneath and other pressures will produce cracks and, if left unremedied, cause a collapse. So we need foundations for buildings and for societies. The law can provide the foundations, but just as the quality of a building's foundations depends on the quality of the ingredients used, so good law depends on what goes into the making of it, primarily the intelligence of the lawmakers. In democracies, the lawmakers are the members of the legislature, and because the decisions of courts are legally binding until overruled, members of the judiciary. Election to the legislature depends on obtaining enough votes. Consequently, political parties choose candidates whom they believe to be the most appealing, and the candidates have a vested interest in avoiding anything which is likely to alienate many potential voters. Those are statements of the obvious, of course. Why have I made them? Because the lawmakers and the laws which they make are generally a reliable sign of the opinions and priorities of the electorate. Therefore, if the electorate have wayward opinions and distorted priorities, those defects will often be evident also in the law. That matters because, as I've said, the law is regarded as an important distinction between right and wrong. Self-identifying Christians, who according to national annual surveys and 10-year censuses constitute a smaller and smaller percentage of the population of England and Wales, should attach importance to the law's function as a measure of morality because, as Harvard Law School's professor Harold Berman wrote, law is not only an instrument of secular policy, but also part of the ultimate purpose or meaning of life. It's a help or a hindrance to us in obeying what Lord Hailsham called the covenants of the lease upon which we hold this life. Legal history has been described as a record of a continually more efficacious social engineering. The law is used to engineer society, to steer it, to shape it. That purpose would be thwarted if compliance with the law were optional. Law is effective to the extent that expectation of its enforcement 
deters disobedience. It is a coercive instrument for the suppression of behaviour which conflicts with prescribed standards. That serves a good purpose if the standards are good. For example, St Thomas Aquinas taught that law has a proper function and effect in developing virtue. His basis for saying so was that the achievement of virtue requires the practice of discipline, that few people can do so without help, and that those whose wayward inclinations cannot be restrained by advice must be restrained by fear and force. He added that by becoming habituated in obedience, they may come to do of their own accord what previously they did from fear, and thus grow in virtue. This schooling through the pressure exerted by fear of punishment is, St Thomas wrote, the discipline of law. Similarly, when Lord Lane was the Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales, he said that very few of us abide by the law because of an innate sense of honesty or an overwhelming desire to keep our conscience clear. He said we avoid transgressing if we can because we know that if we were found out the consequences would be disastrous. But he went on to comment on the withering of deterrence which used to exist. It's not a coincidence that the withering has occurred while fragmentation of moral belief has grown. The result of that growth is amorality, which not only pervades society, but is portrayed by politicians as a matter for pride. Some judges have invoked the same relativist anarchy to justify their decisions that equality law requires individuals to give secularism precedence over Christian moral principle. As I <coughs> indicated earlier, <coughs> excuse me, all beliefs are equal, but some are more equal than others. This is what can happen when words are interpreted in a philosophical vacuum, instead of by reference to meaningful criteria. Unable or unwilling to assert that any particular creed and value system is superior to any other, answer the law, legislators and administrators and judges unite instead around an empty equality, but unavoidably show their priorities when a decision between irreconcilable attitudes has to be made. Equality of beliefs is an illusion, and belief that equality can be put into practice is a delusion. Hilaire Belloc believed even before the Second World War that there was insufficient recognition of the essential factor of a common religion or philosophy. Neglect of it mattered because without what he called a common moral code expressed in defined terms, the unity of society can never be achieved. My favourite statement of the point was made by Lord Devlin in 1959. Here is what he said. Society means a community of ideas. 
Without shared ideas on politics, morals and ethics, no society can exist. If men and women try to create a society in which there is no fundamental agreement about good and evil, they will fail. If, having based it on such agreement, the agreement goes, the society will disintegrate. For society is not something that is kept together physically. It is held by the invisible bonds of common thought. If the bonds were too far relaxed, the members would drift apart. A common morality is part of the bondage. The bondage is part of the price of society. And mankind, which needs society, must pay its price. The common morality which prevails now in Britain, and evidently in many other countries, comprises relativism, individualism and minimalism, and has produced secularism. It has infected ostensibly religious people, whose official leaders normally confine themselves to abstractions and anodyne comments, which, although avoiding criticism, have not averted general neglect of recognisable religious practice. Meanwhile, any among the still practising who toy with ideas of expressing countercultural or religious attitudes can expect to meet accusation that they are outmoded. If outmoded means regarded as belonging to the past, the accusation is true, but attitudes are not invalidated by disregard. Gilbert Keith Chesterton wrote that belief is a matter of philosophy, not of time. The results of disregarding a principle can furthermore vindicate it. A spectacular example is the chaos which resulted from what is described inaccurately as the Reformation. Repudiation of the divinely established authority in matters of theology and morality is bound to bring disaster, as it has done. That broad example contains more specific ones. Father Timothy Finnegan, who founded the Association of Priests for the Gospel of Life, wrote that an orthodox moral theologian would have been dismissed as alarmist and unrealistic if he had suggested in 1968 that rejection of Humanae Vitae, published in that year, would lead to civil partnerships, and now marriages, between homosexuals, showing children, including some in Catholic schools, animated cartoons of sexual intercourse and masturbation, with enthusiastic explanatory comments, and how to use condoms, and where to obtain abortions without the knowledge of parents, IVF and the destruction of surplus embryos. All of those legally established realities fall within the scope of Pope Paul VI's prediction that rejection of the principles which he reiterated in Humano Vitae would open wide the way to a general lowering of moral standards. In 1983, Lord Lane mentioned the pill and legalised abortion and added easy access to pornography and easy divorce 
as everyday unremarkable phenomena of our society, which he said were unthinkable 30 years ago and have all made their contribution to our present condition. As he said in 1986, perhaps unaware that he was confirming what Pope Paul had predicted, there has been a general lowering of standards at every stage of life and on every level, and we are reaping the results. Among those results are unwelcome consequences for people who, by word or deed, oppose what is wrong. When considering the ground which might be covered in this talk, I didn't expect to include adverse consequences for such opponents. Indeed, there are enough examples from which to construct a separate talk. But memory put in front of me one particular example which I decided to describe. Appropriately for this context, it is about a lawyer. Mr Justice Coleridge, a High Court judge, had a record of publicly criticising family breakdown and the failure of the law to combat it. He also spoke publicly in support of traditional marriage and produced practical evidence for it. In April 2008, he said that within the following 20 years, the effects of a cancerous meltdown of family relationships would be as marked and as destructive as the effects of global warming. In June 2009, he said that small-scale matters of private concern become a matter of public concern when they reach epidemic proportions and have a detrimental effect on a significant proportion of the population of all types and ages. And he called for a national commission to be set up to devise ways of putting an end to games of what he called musical relationships or pass the partner, amounting to a complete and uncontrolled free-for-all where being true to oneself and one's needs is the only yardstick for controlling behaviour." Unquote. In July 2011, he gave an interview to BBC Radio 5 in which he said that a cultural revolution during the past 50 years had given people complete freedom of choice, which was great when they behaved responsibly, but not when they treat life as a free-for-all. The law on divorce illustrates the point. He said that obtaining a divorce is easier than getting a driving licence. It's a form-filling exercise, and you'll get your divorce in six weeks if everyone agrees. Probably predictably, everyone did not agree with his outspokenness. He was advised, apparently informally by the Judicial Conduct and Investigations Office, to keep quiet about what David Cameron called our broken society. But in December 2012, in an interview with The Times, he described same-sex marriage as a minority issue and government plans for it as a shambles. In December 2013, he told the Daily Telegraph that children of married parents are much more likely to benefit than those of unmarried ones, that couples whose relationship was stable enough to cope with the rigours of child re rearing should marry, and that those who did not feel ready for children should not have them. 
that seems to have been the last straw. And the Judicial Conduct and Investigations Office announced a decision of the Lord Chancellor and the Lord Chief Justice that by expressing such opinions publicly he was guilty of misconduct. They gave him a formal warning. In April 2014 he retired, a few years early, to be free to speak out and because he had received too little support from the legal profession. He said that hundreds of judges had been afraid that by showing support for his traditional views they would harm their careers. I could have struggled on if I'd got more solid support, he said. Previously he had formed something called the Marriage Foundation, so that, as he wrote in the Daily Telegraph in July 2013, the case for the importance of marriage can be clearly advocated and supported by the best research. You would do well to ask the Marriage Foundation how you could help it. I suggest that you do the same with the Family Education Trust, formerly known as the Responsible Society, formed several decades ago to oppose the opinion of Roy Jenkins MP that a permissive society is desirable. Time may show whether ceasing to be a judge gave Sir Paul Coleridge increased influence. It is worthy of note that his public comments on aspects of British society brought him a warning for misconduct, whereas no known adverse action was taken against judges who commented on other debatable matters, such as by denying that religious principles have any intrinsic entitlement to authority over human law, praising secularism, and saying that it's not the business of the courts to tell people how to behave something which, of course, the courts do every day, and for which purpose they exist. That brings us back to the originally declared subjects of this talk, alleged equality of values or principles, and the purpose of law. We live in a world in which, as the Vatican's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith declared in a document from which I quoted briefly earlier, Citizens claim complete autonomy with regard to their moral choices and lawmakers maintain that they are respecting this freedom of choice by enacting laws which ignore the principles of natural ethics and yield to ephemeral cultural trends as if every possible outlook on life were of equal value. Judicial and administrative authorities do not only apply that policy without comment but express strong approval of it. They are relativists. They tie themselves in knots by asserting the equality of conflicting beliefs and lifestyles, but, as I said earlier, show their priorities when decisions between irreconcilables have to be made. People demand tolerance for their own attitudes, but no tolerance for contrary ones. It is, of course, natural. Most of us do it. The question is, whose attitudes are to prevail? Somebody's must. That is common sense. Society cannot function if everybody is entitled to do as he wishes, so laws are needed. They have to be made on the basis of evaluations, and evaluations are not of equal merit. Whatever may be said about the decisions made, 
they have to be enforced against people who disobey them. Coercion is not necessarily wrong. Everybody can recognise that, and people who express unlimited disapproval of views being imposed are talking nonsense. I hope that I have succeeded in making that clear. This MP3 recording has been made available by Family Life International. Help us to make many more available in order to promote our Catholic faith. Go to www.familyandlife.org.uk and donate today. Mm-hmm.